Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, I would like you to turn to the book of James, to the first chapter of this great epistle of um, James, who is the bondservant of God. He calls himself the bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad. Greetings. He says in the first verse of chapter 1. And then he goes on to say these words. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. When I think of the word endurance, invariably I am led to uh, think of a man by the name of Ernest Shackleton. Ernest Shackleton was the leader of one of the most treacherous expeditions ever recorded in history. This expedition was uh, an attempt to reach, to be the first explorers, to reach the South Pole. And this happened a little over a 100 years ago in 1914. He gathered together a crew of 27 men, and they got aboard a ship uh, appropriately named the Endurance. And uh, they traveled south in the South Atlantic Ocean into the Weddell Sea uh, to the the, uh, Antarctic continent. And as they took their ship en route to the South Pole, Uh, suddenly their ship got stuck in uh, ice. And uh, they were about a thousand miles from their goal when when the ship completely uh, just got encased by ice flows. As a result of that, uh, Shackleton and his men had to hunker down in the ship uh, during the winter uh, for nine months. And eventually the ice was so powerful that it just slowly crushed the ship until the entire ship sank below the ice. From that point on, the men camped out on these massive ice flows that drifted uh, hundreds of miles for, for about five months. They did that and eventually they got a little bit north where they could get off of the ice and get into the um, to the lifeboats that they had dragged with them uh, during this time. And they were able to make it to an island called Elephant Island. This is the, probably the most inhospitable island in the world. It is just a frozen wasteland. And they were hunkered down there for for many more months. And as soon as they got there, they, they decided they needed to send out a rescue mission. So Shackleton and uh, five other men, six of them all together, took one of the lifeboats. And they made what many historians believe to be one of the most harrowing sea journeys ever made in the South Atlantic. Which if you know anything about that particular ocean, that particular body of water, it is the most treacherous body of water in the world. They managed to travel uh, 800 miles in this 22-foot craft and, uh, and in a course of 15 days where they endured hurricane-force winds and eventually made it to an island called South Georgia. 
And this was where they originally started their trip. Uh, it is a whaling uh, island with a, with a large whaling station. They managed to get to a portion of this island, but then once they got there, they had to take three of their men and travel uh, 32 miles over frozen mountains. Uh, and they, were managed, they managed to do that in a 36-hour period. Uh, till they could get to civilization, to this whaling station. Well, then, of course, they had left uh, 22 of the men back on Elephant Island, 800 miles away, and they made three attempts to try to get to this island. Every attempt failed as they took a larger vessel to rescue them. Eventually, they made a fourth trip after four and a half months and got to the island and rescued all 22 men. Of all the 27 men that started out on this journey, every single one of them survived. They were, they were, uh, from the, from the moment they got stuck in the ice to the moment of their rescue was one year and nine months. When I think of that story, I think of the word endurance. And this is uh, a good segue into what James, who was the pastor of the Jerusalem church in the early uh, days of the church, James is not the James that we're most familiar with, who would be the brother of John, one of the disciples of Jesus. Rather, James, who wrote this epistle in the New Testament, is the real brother of Jesus, and uh, he did not believe in Jesus during his uh, during Jesus's ministry. But after Christ rose from the dead, his brother James came to see his own need to trust his brother, who was, in fact, his Lord and Savior. And so James became the pastor of this church. And when he wrote this letter, which is likely the first letter written in the New Testament. Uh, the church in Jerusalem was undergoing a great deal of persecution. It was the second wave of persecution that had taken place in the city of Jerusalem since the beginning of the church. And it was a time when James, the other James, who was one of the disciples of the Lord, the brother of John, had been killed by Herod Agrippa I, and this uh, started a new wave of persecution, and many of the believers were scattered during this time, and they were Jewish believers. And this is who James writes to. This is why he says, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, they had fled from Jerusalem. And during this time, there was also a famine. And so not only did they have persecution, but there was a famine in the land. So you had these Christians who had not only had to endure uh Persecution. Many of them had lost their jobs. They were poverty-stricken. Uh, food was scarce. And they were hated by both their fellow Jews and by the Roman government. And so James writes this letter and he begins, this letter is really a, a, a series of, of little homilies, you might say, little sermonettes. And uh, in many ways, James is kind of like the New Testament version of the book of Proverbs. James brings a lot of wisdom to us in this book, a lot of practical wisdom, much like we would read in the book of Proverbs, though it doesn't have the poetic structure 
that the book of Proverbs has. Nonetheless, he begins this series of, of exhortations, if you will, with this first exhortation in verses 2 through 4, where he says again, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. And these Jews had indeed been encountering a variety of trials. He says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You know, this is a passage, obviously, for the Jewish believers that James writes to at this time, but it is a passage for us as well. And right now we are living in unprecedented times in our nation and in the world. Because of this pandemic, we are holed up in our homes. We're, we're unable to meet with friends and family like we normally would. We are unable to meet together for corporate worship, and so we have to do these live stream services. Many of you have lost jobs because of this pandemic. You know people perhaps who have even lost their lives due to this virus. Many of us, we fear being infected. The economy is in a tailspin. Many businesses will close forever. Uh, there are probably many, many businesses here in Kerrville that will shut down and we'll never see them open again. We don't know how long this is going to last. The future seems uncertain. And here we have James telling us that we need to endure. We need to face these trials and endure these trials but but more importantly, he says, we need to do this with joy. And that is a, a startling command that he gives us. He is calling us to endure these trials that we encounter. He is calling us to endure this pandemic with joy. And, and if you're not startled by that command... I'm not sure what would startle you. But this is amazing because he is saying that when we face trials, when we are told that we can't meet together as a church, we're to, we're to encounter that trial with joy. And, and we might ask ourselves, really? How do we do that? How do we consider the fact that we are unable to meet as a church, that, that we are facing uh, uh, economic collapse in our country, when people have lost jobs, and, and when businesses are going to close, and people are dying from this pandemic, and, and we don't know how this thing is going to get resolved, and we're supposed to be joyful? How do we do that? Well, this is what James explains to us. And this is what we want to examine this morning. I want you to understand that this is not just a bare command uh, for us to just kind of perk up and put on our happy face during this difficult time. 
Rather, James gives us very specific reasons why we should regard this particular trial in our lives right now as an occasion for joy. And let me summarize for you the reason why he says we should face this particular trial as we should face all trials in our lives with joy. He gives us reasons for it. And the reason is very simply this. It is because God is using this trial, God is using COVID-19 to test our faith. And as God uses this trial to test our faith, That well-tested faith will produce within us endurance. Now you say, well, what good is that? Well, James continues a, a train of thought in which when our faith is tested by trials that we have regarded with joy... And that those trials then, the, the, that well-tested faith produces endurance, then in turn, this endurance will produce within us, will forge within us Christ-like character. And, and, and what we find, I believe, in this passage is that trials are in fact necessary. Trials are necessary uh, in order that our faith will be tested, that it will be joyfully tested, so that it will produce endurance, so that endurance will produce Christian character, because without that process, we will not mature as Christians. We will not grow in our faith. We will not become more Christ-like. So the message of James this morning is simply this. We are called to endure trials joyfully and confidently knowing that God uses these trials to forge Christ-like maturity in every believer. That is the message of this passage this morning. I want to break it down for you. And we're going to look at it really in two parts. In in. In verse 2, we see the main command that James gives us, consider it all joy when you encounter these various trials. And then verses 3 and 4 explain several reasons why we should consider these trials with joy. And he gives us some reasons for that, uh, which we will spell out in detail uh, in a moment, let's let's begin then by focusing our attention on verse two. This is the main command of the passage, right? And, and he says, "Consider it all joy." We could translate this word "count it all joy" or "regard it all joy." And, and what is it that we are to consider? Well, we're to consider our trials. Right, And what James is, is telling us is that he's saying we need to think about the trials that come in our lives, the trials and tribulations, the adversities that we encounter in our lives, we're to think about them in a certain way. Right, And, and James knows that we don't think about trials the way that we should. Nobody really thinks about adversity the way that they should, especially Christians. Right, think about it. How, how is it that people normally face situations like we're facing right now? Well, usually they are occasions for distress, 
When people experience severe trials in their lives, uh, some will express impatience, perhaps frustration, maybe even bitterness. Others face trials just with discomfort, maybe discouragement, right? Some, some people move into anxiety when we face a trial like this, and others even go into a place of despair. When you think about COVID-19, a lot of us are thinking, man, this is just, this is messed up our plans. This is messed up my plans, right? This is shattered our expectations, right? Some people, they face trials. They, they wallow in, in self-pity. They, they begin to say to themselves, I don't, I don't deserve this. What did I do to deserve this? Lord, this is, this is unfair. Others are like, this is, this is ridiculous. How could all this be happening? Right? Others, you know, some people say this is a way overreaction. Others are saying, no, this is underreaction. And there's all this confusion. And we have to ask ourselves, how should we feel about what's going on right now? What, what is, what is the way that we should think about this trial? And another question for you is, how are you thinking about this trial? Does the things that I've described describe any way that you have been thinking about COVID-19? How is it that you think about any trial that is in your life? Right, I want you to notice that, that James is, is talking about this command in the context of, of encountering various trials. So various indicates that uh, there's, no, there's no kind of trial that is immune from his command here. Every kind of trial, whether it be persecution in the case of, of the Jewish believers that he writes to, or the fact that they were facing famine, right? You have a religious persecution on the one hand, and you have physical devastation, material devastation on the other. It doesn't matter what kind of trial that we might face, right? This is why he speaks of a variety of trials, and, and he uses the plural trials. He's not talking about one specific trial. He's talking about a multitude of trials, right? We always are thinking, okay, maybe this will be the last trial. Maybe this is it, Lord, and I'm not going to have to face any more of this. No, that's not the case. Throughout our entire lives, we will face one trial after another. And this is just one of them. When we get through this particular trial, there's going to be other trials that will come on top of that. And so we have to ask ourselves, how are we to think about trials? What, what is our perspective On our trials, what perspective do you have with COVID-19? James is saying the perspective that you need to have is you need to regard it as an occasion for all joy. Notice he uses this word, all joy. What does he mean by that? I, I think what James means here is he's talking about a thorough joy and an unmixed 
kind of joy, an undiluted joy, a pure joy, a joy that is wholly undisturbed by the trials that you encounter. Right? That, that is amazing. How can, you, how can you have joy in the midst of a trial uh, and be completely undisturbed by that trial in your experience of joy? That, that's amazing. What kind of joy is, is, is James talking about here? Well, again, notice that he is getting us to try to reorient our thinking about our trials. And this is so important. The way that we perceive trials in our lives is critical to how we will fare throughout the course of that trial. And when we think about joy, we need to rethink how we think about joy. So we not only have to rethink how we think about trials, we have to rethink about how we think about joy. Right? Most people see joy as a byproduct of favorable circumstances in their lives. Right? Things are going well, they bring joy. Something is attractive to you, you embrace that attractive reality, whatever it may be, and it brings you joy. And so we find our joy in these external circumstances, in these outside things. Right? Could be people, could be relationships, could be your job, could be your marriage, right? Could be coming to church, right? And and there's no doubt there is much joy in being gathered together as the body of Christ. But is that where we find our joy? I want you to be aware that you can never look to your circumstances as the source of your joy. Circumstances, whether they be favorable or unfavorable, can never be a true and sustaining source for joy as a Christian. Notice that when James gives us this command, he is not saying, I want you to find joy in the trial. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying, well, you know, this is really an unhappy affair that we're going through. But secretly, I want you to realize this is really a happy set of circumstances here. Right? Is that what he's saying? Of course not. We would never say that the fact that we cannot meet right now as a church... In person, we would not say, no one would say, well, this is a very happy set of circumstances. I am so glad that we're not meeting as a church. Right? No one would say that. That would be ridiculous. Right? These are not happy circumstances. They're terrible. So what that tells us is that the trial that we are encountering, whatever trial that is, cannot be the source of our joy, but it is the occasion for rejoicing. Right? We don't rejoice in the trial. What we do is we rejoice to what the trial points us to. And what our trials as believers point us to 
is God. Right? When you study joy in the scripture, you understand that joy is something that is a unique possession of the believer. And that joy is always connected to the object of joy, ultimately, which is God. So that God is not only the object of our joy, but He is also the source of our joy. This is why a couple of weeks ago, when Pastor Chris was preaching from Philippians 4, uh, he indicated to us how foundational uh, the beginning of that passage in Philippians 4.4 4 is, where it says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Notice the object of rejoicing. It's not, it's not don't rejoice in your circumstances. It's, don't rejoice in your blessings or lack thereof. You rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice. Our eyes have to get refocused. They have to get reoriented. We don't rejoice in our circumstances. We rejoice in the God who is doing something. In all of our circumstances. I'm reminded of a similar situation that the Israelites went through after their Babylonian captivity when they had been uh, exiled from their land uh, and, and they slowly began to make their way back and, and to be gathered together as a people in their own place, in their own land. And, and in the book of Nehemiah, we learn about this. And Nehemiah brought uh, some of the exiles back to the city of Jerusalem where they began to build the walls. And then the priest Ezra came to help reestablish the worship and, and they built the walls and they began work on the on the on the new temple and once those walls were complete they gathered all the people together for a worship service and it was the first time that the people could gather together for worship and who knows how long and the people were so anxious for the word of God and Ezra began to to open up for them the law of the Lord and he began to expound upon it and the people began weeping because it had been so long since they had an opportunity to worship like that together. And as they were weeping and as they were just hugging each other and, and expressing their, their gratitude to, to, to one another and this opportunity they had to, to be worshiping together once again, then Nehemiah and Ezra declared to the people, he said to them, that, that the joy of the Lord is your strength. And it was. And the joy of the Lord needs to be our strength. Our source of joy, the object of our joy, needs to be in the Lord. Joy is a command. It's not the byproduct of favorable circumstances. Joy is a command and it tells us that joy is not natural to us. We have to pursue it and we must pursue it In God Himself, God is the very source of our joy. Right? Throughout the the Bible, we find these commands and, and, and 
I'm just going to list a, a couple of them. Psalm 64.10 says, The righteous man will be glad in the Lord and will take refuge in Him. And all the upright in heart will glory. You'll notice that, that throughout the Scripture there is a strong connection between commands to give thanks to God, to praise God, to sing unto the Lord, uh, to place our joy in Him. They're all connected together. Right? And what the Bible is constantly um, driving us to do is to place our focus on God. On who He is. And what he does, what he has done. Psalm 106 is, uh, re- repeats, repeats a, a refrain that is found throughout the Old Testament. You'll find this in many places. It's repeated multiple times. And, and it says, praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. For his loving kindness is everlasting. You see, we need to find our joy in a holy, infinite, unchanging, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise God. We need to put our focus on a God who is characterized with an unearthly beauty and goodness that far transcends any trial, any pandemic that we would ever experience. Not only that, but this amazing God has sent forth His Son into this world with a plan that was established long before He made the world. He sent His Son into this world to be a sacrifice for sins so that when we place our faith in Him, we find that our sin has been defeated, that death itself is defeated, that Christ has conquered sin and death and evil and the devil. And He's done all of this because of his death and his resurrection and and that has value not only for our salvation but for our whole lives and Christ right now he rules from the, the right hand of the father and nothing can stay his hand God is sovereign Christ is sovereign Christ is sovereign over COVID-19 There is no pandemic that can thwart his purposes. There is no one that can undermine what God is doing. And God is in control of everything that is going on. And it is in him that we must find our joy. Well, you know, James could just stop right there. Right, He could just say, okay, there, there you have it. Find your joy in God and you're good to go. And, and that would be true. But James goes on to give us some other very important reasons as to why we should find our joy in the midst of trials and find that joy in God Himself. Right, And, and there's a kind of train of thought Right, that 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 one thing leads to another, and this is this is uh, how he structures verse three and four. 
So let's, let's look again at what he's saying. He's saying, consider it all joy, right? And the implication is that your joy is to be found in God, not in your trials. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing, right? Here's the reason. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, right? There's the first train of thought. Then he says, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Let's look at what he means by all this. Right, so first of all, he's saying that the reason why we can rejoice in our trials, the reason why we can find our joy in God in the midst of trials, is because... We know that these trials test the genuineness of our faith. Now let's think about this for a moment. How how is it that you can pursue joy when you're trampled down, when you're hurting, when you're struggling, when you're uncertain, you're anxious? How do we pursue joy in God in the midst of all that? It's because we know something. As Christians, we know something very important about trials. If you don't know this important thing about trials, James is reminding you. And when he says that that we know something important about the purpose of trials, it's going to go against how we feel about the trial, right? Right? We know how we feel about these trials. We don't like them. Right? But the problem is, is that trials, when we're facing trials, it's a struggle for us to focus on what we know to be true. Right? It's easy to lose sight of of what God is doing in the midst of a trial. And we start thinking to ourselves, oh, man, God God must not really be caring about me because look at what's going on here. He must not care about our church, right? He's forgotten us. We're going to be destroyed. You know, the, 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 never, the, nothing is ever going to be the same again, right? This is the end. Right? And so these kinds of feelings that we have in the midst of a trial, they obscure an important truth. And what we need to do when we face trials like this is we need to periodically stop and we need to say to ourselves, okay, this is a test. This is a test. Trial equals test. What is it a test of? And who is it a test from? Right? It's a test from God. And it is a test of our faith in God. Right? God uses trials to test the quality of our faith in Him. Right? Who are you trusting in? Where is your hope lie? Where is your trust oriented in COVID 19? What are you putting your trust in? Are you putting trust in the fact that, oh, things are going to get better, circumstances are going to change for the better? Well, they may not. 
Right? Where do you put your trust in? Oh, I'm trusting the president. I'm trusting the government. They're going to get this all figured out. I'm trusting the experts. Well, it depends on which expert you're trusting in, right? And I'm trusting my bank account. Thankfully, I've got my money secure. Right? Oh, my health is strong. I'm not too worried. I, I'm strong as an ox. If those are the things that you're trusting in, then your faith has failed. Because that's not where your faith should be in. Your faith needs to be in the same God in whom you find your joy. Right? God alone is trustworthy and we must cling to Him not knowing what He is doing in, in all the particulars of what's going on, but we know He is an unshakable anchor. He is in control. He has far more wisdom than any experts that you can gather together in any room in the world. And His goodness is so far surpassing any of the well-intentioned ideas that anyone in this world might have. And He alone is the source of all stability in the midst of chaos. It is Him that we must trust. And this trial right now is a test as to where you are placing your confidence. Is it your circumstances? Is it yourself? Is it someone else? Or is it the God of the universe? Well, we see that it's not just a genuine test of faith, but we know that a well-tested and joyful faith, notice what I said there, a well-tested and joyful faith will produce endurance. And and believe me, when you have a well-tested faith that is marked by joy in God and in God alone, you will have a, a, a level endurance that will far outstrip any Ernest Shackleton or anyone else. Right? This test of faith is a crucible. It's a fire. And this is what we learn in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, a very similar passage. I encourage you to go there uh, later and look at that passage. But Peter tells us the same thing, that, that the trials we experience are, are a crucible for our faith, where our faith is tested. And what he says is that genuine faith, when it is tested in, in the crucible of trials... And the fires that are, uh, attend that crucible, that faith will come forth as gold. Of course, when our faith is focused on the one stable source of hope and joy that we have, which is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, this, this faith, this tested faith produces endurance. Right? And endurance is something that can only be established in the face of opposing forces, right? That's what endurance is. 
right? The word here is, 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 has the idea of carrying a heavy load over a long distance for a long period of time. That's what endurance is. Carrying a heavy load over a long distance for a long period of time. I'm reminded of, of a scene from a movie that my family watched recently um, called um, Facing the Giants. It's, it's the death crawl scene, right? In that scene, you have these football players, and one of the leaders of the football team is, is challenged to, uh, to do a kind of bear crawl on his hands and feet across the entire football field while he's carrying someone on his back, one of his teammates on his back. And it's called the death crawl. And he's blindfolded and he goes across that field. And let me tell you, it is painful and he's crying out. And it seemed like it took him forever to get across that hundred yard field. Right? And in sweat pouring off of his body. Right? But he made it and he endured the pain. That's what we have to do when we face a trial. And it comes as a result of faith that is being tested, a faith that has already been marked by joy. Right? And just as your muscles get stronger through resistance and through endurance, so our faith and endurance get strengthened when we bear up under trials that it produces endurance but but James is not finished there that's not the end goal it's not just to produce endurance just for the sake of endurance no endurance has a purpose what does endurance do for us well he tells us he says and let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing Right? Now, we have a command in verse 2, which is to consider it all joy. And we have another command here in verse 4, which is to let endurance have its perfect result. Right? And, and the idea here is simply, it's almost a kind of passive idea, although it's not very passive when you think about it. But it's the idea of don't resist the work that endurance does. In other words, don't short-circuit that work. Don't fight against it. Don't fight against the work of endurance in the midst of this trial. And we don't know how long it's going to go on. And so we got to stick with it. Right? We have to be patient. The idea here is don't give up. And don't give in. Yes, this is painful. We know it's painful. None of us likes this. Right? Our faith is being stretched and our joy is being challenged. But we must stand firm. We cannot resist the work that endurance is doing. What is that that work? James tells us it's a perfect work. It's a perfect result. What is this perfect result? I believe it's clear from what he says in the rest of the passage, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In other words, it is an indication that endurance produces maturity in the life of the believer. Endurance produces Christ-like maturity, Christ-like character. And the implication is, this is necessary. I want you to think about this. Do you want to grow as a Christian? 
Do you want to become more like Christ? Do you want to have a a giant-sized faith that is completely unmoved by the most powerful forces in this world? Then you must go through trials. And you must have your faith tested. And you must do this with all joy. And you must endure those trials. Because it is only through that process that Christ-like character is going to be forged in your life. I'm sorry to say this, but it's necessary. It's necessary that every Christian go through these trials. We can't avoid them. God purposely brings them into our lives because it's the only way that He is going to forge Christ-like character in us. Right? The idea is that we are perfect and complete, that we're lacking in nothing, that, that all of the, the, the virtues of Christian maturity are being worked in our lives through this process that James has described to us. So that once we face a trial, we begin to get our focus on God. We find our joy in Him. We don't look at the circumstances. We don't look at the trial itself. We look at God. We find our joy in Him. Then we place our faith in this God. Right? As we realize that the trial is meant to test our faith. And so we, we believe that this God has good purposes for us. And so we trust Him. We joyfully trust Him. And the result of that is that we will begin to endure the trial. And, and then we have to allow that endurance to have its work. We can't resist it. We've got to be patient. We, we've got to allow it to, to work its way in our lives so that as we endure, we will increase in our maturity. We will begin to see all the important characteristics that the Bible describes the mature Christian is having are going to come in the midst of trials. The the, the Christian that does not endure through trials is a weak, feeble Christian. It is only the Christians that endure trials faithfully and joyfully that find themselves strengthened in their Christian character and they become rocks. Right? Trials are not meant to be for fun, right? When God tested Abraham in Genesis 22, and it's exactly what it says, that God tested Abraham when he asked him to, to sacrifice his son, Isaac. Abraham didn't start jumping up for joy. Oh, good boy, I get to kill my son. Of course not. That wasn't the purpose. The purpose was to test his faith. Did he believe in God's promise that God would sustain the line of his son that was the line of the Messiah? God was testing Abraham and Abraham passed the test because he believed that Jehovah Jireh, the provider, would sustain this promise that somehow even if his son had died, he would rise him from the dead as the Hebrews tells us and that he would continue the line of Messiah. And he wasn't focused on the trial. He was focused on his God. And that's what we need to do. God is faithful. His provision is there for us. And we must trust that He is good. That He is faithful. That He is strong. 
that he is trustworthy. And, and we need to believe that God loves us too much to not take us through the trials. The fact that we are going through the trials is proof that he loves us because we need it if he is going to forge Christ-like character in each of our lives. This is hard truth. It's, it's as some people say, the hard providences of God. It's the, it's the frowning face of providence and not the smiling face of providence. But it is the necessary face of His providence. And we must rejoice because we have a God who is worthy of finding all of our joy in Him. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful, Lord, that You know far better than we do when it comes to the trials that we face in our lives. Father, You know exactly what You're doing with this pandemic that we are facing that has us all bewildered and we don't understand it. We don't understand what's going on with it. We don't understand what's going to happen with it in the future. Lord, we're uh, just completely baffled by it. And Father, we are displaced. Father, we are holed up in our homes. We are unable to gather together as your people. And Lord, we are not happy about that. And yet at the same time, Lord, you call us to pursue joy in the midst of our trials, to pursue that joy in you, knowing that you are testing our faith, testing the quality of our faith, uh, that 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 well-tested, joyful faith, Lord, will produce endurance, and endurance will forge within us the Christ-like character that we so desperately need. Father, I pray we would cling to that truth. Father, more importantly, I pray we would cling to you we would cling to Christ our Savior who has offered His life as a sacrifice for our sins. And Father, if there is anyone here this morning who is listening to this broadcast, and Father, they don't know Christ as their Lord. Father, they don't know Christ as the one who can save them from their sins and deliver them from death and destruction and eternal judgment. Father, I pray today that their eyes would be opened. That, Father, they would see the desperateness of their need for Christ. That they can't trust in themselves. They can't trust in this world. Father, they can't trust that things are just going to get better. Maybe they will. Maybe they won't. Father, they need to place their trust in the only source of hope that anyone can have in this world. And that is Jesus Christ. I pray this morning that people would come to Him in this crisis. That, Father, they would see salvation in Christ. That they would see eternal life and forgiveness of sins and complete and total joy that is found only in Him. Father, I pray this in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.